Scano Segoini, Bojo, Kwekwe, Tansi, and good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM as we broadcast to Toronto and Ottawa. In Toronto, we are at 106.5 FM. In Ottawa, 95.7. Welcome to our listeners and welcome to our guest today. His name is Daryl McLeod. He's Cree from Treaty 8 Territory in northern Alberta. And let me tell you a little bit about him. So before deciding to pursue writing in his retirement, he was the chief negotiator of land claims for the federal government and executive director for the education and internal international rather affairs with the Assembly of First Nations. There are a couple of uh, interesting things right there. He holds a degree in French literature and education from the University of British Columbia. He lives in Souk, B.C. and is working on his second memoir following the events of Mama Sketch, which we are going to be talking about today. And he's also up for an award for that, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about that now, too. He can tell us a little bit about that as we get into this. And uh, in the spring of 2018, he was accepted into the Banff Writing Studio for to advance his first work of fiction. Daryl, congratulations, and welcome to the show today. Thank you so much. Tanse. You know, Daryl, um, I, of course, received your book, and I've read it, and you know, it's interesting. Uh, I must admit, I didn't have enough time to read the whole thing as as closely as I would like to, right. so I had to skim. But I, I'll tell you something I wrote down before I got to the end. I, okay. I wanted to see what the end said. And I wrote down two things, crows and crucifixes. Interesting. And when I got to the end of the book, what did I see? The crows that you were talked about at the beginning of the book, there right. they were again at the end. What's what's that about? What were the crows representing for you as as you went through this and and kept coming back to them and talking about them? Well, birds in general have uh, played an important role in my life, and for my mother, they were even more important because mom believed that she, and I believe that as well, that she could communicate with the birds, that they were messengers for her, mm. and they brought. She grew up in the bush in mm. northern Alberta, and I really mean in the heart of of the bush and the heart of the wilderness and the heart of nature. Her family moved seasonally um, with trap lines and stuff like that for hunting and fishing and trapping Mm. because they lived off of the land. And so, you know, they they really lived in contact, in full contact with the nature and with nature. So mom had all of these abilities that I don't think were passed on to all of us fully. But I do have a relationship with birds, and they are messengers for me in, at different times, mm-hmm, too, particularly saw. crows. Um, mm. Crows, for me, have always been very spiritual birds, and um, they've, for me, they've always brought warnings, and warnings of, of that dire things are about to happen. And in the case of <clears throat> my mother's uh, death and um, at the end of the, the, end of the book... Um, the crows there represent a type of, um, they facilitate the passage mm-hmm. from this of her spirit from right. this world into the next world. Right. Yeah, and, um, and there was another bird that, that brought a message to you of her death, the morning of her death. Indeed. Um, on your balcony, I believe. Uh, yeah, it was an enclosed balcony, and I awoke in the morning to, the. Uh, it was about 6 o'clock in the morning, to, uh, 6 or 6.30 to 
some kind of ruckus going on downstairs, and I didn't know what it was, so I rushed down there. Seems strange. I was home alone, and I don't have any pets or animals, so I rushed down to the enclosed balcony to see what was going on, and there was this large owl um, entrapped. He'd gotten in through a window that was partially open and then couldn't get out. Mm. And so it was floundering around and knocking things over and, you know, hitting up against the, the window trying to get out. And I knew, as soon as I saw it, I knew what the message was. Um, and I was surprised, as I say in the book, that a bird would come to me mm-hmm. the same way the birds used to come to my mother. Your mother plays a, a large role in this book, throughout the book, and, and your relationship and, and struggled right. relationship that you had with her and, and her her own struggles and... Uh, uh, and and I guess her odd behavior, we might say, there was times when you 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 know you you throw in and literally uh, throw in things. Uh, you know, I think of the one situation where she th- throws this beer bottle and and smashes it as you're walking out, out down towards a room and and just came out of nowhere. And I don't think it was really explained, and I don't think you explained that in the book. And it was a, a jarring situation. Right, and it turns out that um, I mean this is real life, uh, and as they say, you know, reality sometimes exceeds fiction. But mm-hmm. that incident with me was a foreshadowing of a more serious incident that happened later in the book. Um, but I believe that people, when they've um, had a certain amount of alcohol to drink um, and haven't had sleep probably haven't eaten properly, that they go into a type of stupor mm. that I call alcohol-induced psychosis kind of mm. thing. But that's my lay mm. definition of it <laughs> because that's what it looks like. Mm. Uh, people can, uh, I've seen people become psychotic. Um, well, even under without the, alcohol and, and without sleep, uh, you know. It can't happen right. for sure. <laughs> but alcohol and uh, abund- an abundance of alcohol and a lack of sleep, mm. I've seen it actually introduce, uh, induce a mm. type of stupor that mm. is quite scary. Mm. When you decided to write this, why did you decide to write it? Well, there are a number of factors. Um, early seeds were planted by authors that I admire very much, like Margaret Lawrence. Mm. I think I was in second year university when I read her book, The Diviners. Mm. And the opening, The River Flowed Both Ways, stuck with me. It was just such an amazing opening. And mm. I pictured this this woman sitting at her window watching the river flow and writing her story. I thought mm. that was just magical. And so that was the first seed that was kind of planted. And I, it just, I just stored it in the back of my mind. I didn't think anything more of it. Um, and then uh, I became, when I was studying French, I became friends with a couple of my French professors who were a married couple. And we used to sit, at, they, they really became my mentors and, mm. and close friends. And we used to sit around talking in the evenings. And I told them stories of my childhood and youth and uh, early youth. And they, they, they lectured me that I should write those stories down because it was a unique story, uh, a slice of Canadian history that only I could tell. Mm. And that what had happened to my family was a unique part of and important part of Canadian history that needed to be told because nobody had told it as of yet and likely nobody else would. Mm. So that was another seed that was planted. And um, then I was working as a school principal up in northern British Columbia on a First Nation called uh, Yakuche First Nation. And I got to uh, work with a wonderful elder named Catherine Bird. She was the culture and language instructor. And... We had a lot of time to sit around and talk after school. 
And at one point, when I had told her some of my stories, she had she just turned to me and said, you know, she wagged her big finger in the air, and she said, uh, "Daryl, you have to write those stories down. They'll help people someday." Mm. And I've I've said that over and over again, re- recounted what Catherine Burr told me because that was really the moment where I knew that I w- I would actually write my stories down. And when you made that decision, um, was it an easy decision to make to share this? It was, but it didn't turn out the way I expected. After Catherine Bird admonished me to write my stories down, I did start writing, and I started writing short stories, and mm. I thought they were going to be for children. I wrote them mm. with the intent of, because I was a school principal and mm. had been a teacher, and mm. I thought I was going to do a collection of short stories for children that would help children in trouble, children who might be going through similar types of things, family breakup, okay. family violence, sure. alcoholism in their family, that sort of thing. Um, so I had written, you know maybe five or ten short stories and just tucked them away over the years. Just whenever it occurred to me to write, I would write. And mm. um, and some of those stories did get find their way into my book mm. eventually. But when I knew I was going to quit working full-time, uh, I, came, I was working in Vancouver on an assignment, and I uh, came across a course that was being offered, and it was called Memoir of Inquiry mm. by an instructor, an amazing writing instructor named Betsy Warland. And just the description of the the course sounded amazing, so I, I signed up and took it. It was a, an evening course, and um, I worked with Betsy for six weeks, and she just helped um, foster my my personal voice, my development as a writer so much. And um, you know, it was really she took us through some interesting exercises to get to know ourselves better, and um, th- through the the six week course. Uh, I came to realize that people, Betsy herself and some of the other students, challenged me after a while because all of my stories were written in third person with about Daryl, but Daryl in third person, right. he and uh, using my own name and that sort of thing. And I was never the main character; mm. I was always a secondary character. Mm. And uh, and that was a challenge throughout the book. You, you asked about my mother earlier, and. It was a real challenge for it not to be the story of my mother's life. Mm. I knew it had to be my life. Mm. Um, but anyway, to get back to write the writing of the book, I worked with Betsy for those six weeks, and we had such a good connection that I s- continued to work with her. And after about a year, we had 26 short stories mm. that were more substantial than the other ones. There may be five to ten pages each. And uh, Betsy suggested I put them together into a type of manuscript and see what happened and uh, give them some kind of ordering. And I did that, and it truly looked like a manuscript for, for a book, a collection of short stories. But then Betsy Warland recommended that I work with a fiction writer uh, as a mentor to give some more depth to the writing, mm. to better do the scenes, develop scenes, right. uh, better develop the characters, the dialogue, that sort of thing. And so I worked with a woman named Shana Lambert, who is a, an amazing fiction writer, a wonderful fiction writer. And um, we did that. We we uh, went through, it took us a year and a half. The manuscript manuscript I had submitted to Shana for her review was uh, 500 pages. And over a year and a half, we cobbled that down to 300. And uh, just kept working on it until it was ready for submission to publishers, mm. and uh, there we are. Now, we're going to get back to the book in a minute, but I want sure. to ask you about the other things. Uh, you mentioned being a teacher, 
uh, as we mentioned in the opening, that you've uh, been a, a chief negotiator for land claims for the federal government, as well as uh, an international affairs uh, education director for the Assembly of First Nations. So you, you've done quite a few things in your life. How did you end up in those those areas of, of work? <laughs> well, it was quite entertaining. I uh, My second book really gets into my career because mm. a lot of uh, intriguing things happened in my career, and uh, there's some quite compelling stories to tell, particularly when you consider where my life started out mm. and where it, it, it ended up and where it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just sort of meandered. Uh, I started out as a teacher. I taught in Vancouver. I taught French immersion for five years. And I, I loved that job. Uh, but my mother passed away in, I think, my third or fourth year of teaching. And when she passed away, I just felt this huge sense of loss, not only because she was my mother, but because she represented my culture, mm. my connection with my culture, mm. my extended family, with my community, mm. Cree language and culture, all of that kind of stuff. And it, it's, I felt like the bridge had, I'd lost the bridge when I lost mother. Okay. And so I started applying for jobs on Indian reserves all over Canada. Any posting that came up, I applied for it because I thought, you know, that's the way to go, get back to a community and uh, that'll help and devote my, dedicate the rest of my career to working with First Nations people and that would take me back. And so I got a principalship in uh, Yakuche First Nation. The school district had, the local First Nation had contracted the school district to take over two of their schools. And so they're hiring principals to take over the schools from Indian Affairs and completely clean house and start them over as if they were, we were opening new schools. Mm. So it was really fun. And uh, I had an amazing time. It was one of the richest periods of my life. Mm. But after I did that job for like a year and a half, um, I contracted people to come from different places to help us out to uh, develop programming in particular I wanted to develop a, a strong teenage program and an adult ed program. So we had some contractors come from a play, from Okanagan University College, from a provincial resource center there for First Nations education. And after a few months, they recruited me to go work with them uh, at Okanagan University College as the director of a provincial curriculum center. And it was too enticing. They, they were very um, cagey about how they did it, very clever, <laughs> It was still winter. It was like 20 below or maybe more in Yakuche in early April. And they took me down to the Okanagan for a job interview. And it was spring. There were tulips blooming. And, you know, I think they were probably cherry blossoms. And it was just too enticing. And uh, plus there were issues, which I write about in my second book, um, that made me decide that I needed to move. Okay. And uh, so... Uh, that led me to work for the provincial government, uh, doing policy for Aboriginal post-secondary education. I was mm. a special advisor to the uh, deputy minister of post-secondary education, uh, and it was in the heady days when BC had an NDP government mm. that had money. Mm. <laughs> so one of my first uh, responsibilities was to get uh, something like $8.5 million in program funding out the door to colleges and universities mm. to initiate new Aboriginal programming. It mm. was it was fantastic. It was mm. An amazing time. But in that process, I had some difficult negotiations with the federal government because in the BC region, just when uh, First Nations were taking advantage of adult education programming and signing up in droves, uh, the federal government decided they were going to cut adult basic education funding and force the provinces to Mm. to fund it on reserves, Mm. which is 
basically illegal. Right. Not only unethical, but illegal. Yeah. <laughs> so over the course of a year or two, I had difficult negotiations with the federal government. I was leading the talks for the province, and we teamed up with a regional First Nations organization. And we convinced the feds that they were wrong, and we were right. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that they should indeed continue to fund adult basic education on reserve. So they did. But then they recruited me to go work with them <laughs> as a negotiator. <laughs> and at first I thought that would be dro- jumping from the frying pan into the fire. Right. And I said, there's no way in hell I'll go work for Indian Affairs. <laughs> it's like working for the enemy. And <laughs> uh, But they said there was a wonderful recruiter, uh, an Anishinaabe woman. And she said, well, at least come and look at the job description. I think mm. you'll like it. And so I looked at the job description for the negotiator position. It, she was right. It was mm. just too good to be true. Mm. I, would have, I would be working on the west coast of Vancouver Island with uh, 13 new channel First Nations, wow. negotiating a comprehensive land claim agreement. Wow. And, uh, That's pretty cool. <laughs> right. They recruited me specifically for that job, and uh, I, I took it. Yeah. I was thrilled. Now, am I, am I mistaken? Souk is on Vancouver Island. Is it, it is. not sort of south? east side, bot- like the bottom part of the, of the island? Yeah, the southernmost yeah. point of the island, yeah, yeah. yeah, right on the coast. Yeah, I thought so. I thought my memory was yeah. serving me correctly. So yeah, I, I have some family in the, on the on okay. Vancouver Island, so uh, oh, I nice. haven't been down that way in a long time, but uh, certainly it's a lovely area. Yeah, it's named after Souk First Nation, or yep. f- for yeah. Souk First Nation. That's right. And uh, they're a Coast Salish tribe. Yep. Uh, they're not New Channels, but... Uh, the new channel th- sort of start at Port Renfrew, which is just west of my house. Esquimalt is also named after the Esquimalt Nation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, thanks for sharing that and telling us about it. So, but prior to this, though, if we go back in your early, as you were going through your schooling, you uh, you also had some, uh, I don't know if you had musical aspirations, but certainly you were involved with music. You got involved early. I, I think you had a guitar when you were younger. Then you got into trumpet playing and, and got mm-hmm. into some choir. Uh, so you had an interest in, in that side of things as well, didn't you? And, and obviously, you, you also wanted to be a doctor, I understand. Right. Well, I come from a musical family. Mm. <clears throat> Both of my great-grandfathers um, played the violin, oh, yeah. the fiddle. Mm. And one of my grandmothers did as well. And my mom and dad both played the guitar and, and sang. Mm. And um, so there was always music around. And I, one of my earliest memories is singing. Uh, I sang from the time I was a toddler and always loved singing. And yeah, my oldest sister, Debbie, bought me a guitar as a gift when I was 14. And I'm a self-taught guitar player. But she knew I had wanted one since mm. I was little. I was begging people <laughs> to teach me to play the guitar or the piano. Mm. And I always sang. Mm. Uh, just it seemed to come naturally. And then, yeah, it, music is one of the things that, one of the factors along with nature and uh, spirituality and, and what I like to call angels mm. uh, in my life that uh, really saved me. And so two of my angels were, were teachers in junior high. Mm. Uh, Mrs. Olson and Miss Epp, mm. uh, the band teacher and the, the English teacher. And they knew I was having a lot of trouble at home. It mm. was one of the roughest times of my life. Mm. Um, Mom had really hit bottom again. Mm. I had got, gone back to live with her then, and we'd gotten the, the younger kids out of the foster home. But things were going very badly, and those two teachers saw my struggles, and they got me a scholarship to go study voice at a provincial music camp for six weeks mm. in Camrose, Alberta. It was an annual summer camp. And I went to that music camp for seven consecutive years after mm. that, wow. working. Mm. Uh, so they, 
they got me special dispensation because I was only 15 and you're supposed to be 16 to go then. And I met wonderful people and it was my music, musical ability just grew like wildfire. Uh, we have to take a, a pause, Daryl. Sure. So we want to come back and talk more about this, but we're going to take a pause on Element FM and we'll be right back with, uh, uh, we will be right back on Moment of Truth right after this. We're back on Moment of Truth. Our guest today is Daryl McLeod and uh, he is an author. He has a, a book which we are discussing. We've been talking to him a little bit about his uh his career choices and some of the things that led him uh, to uh, some of the areas of interest that he got in, which has been quite fascinating. Uh, but uh, the book we are discussing, we're going to get into a little more of that at this point in time. Mamasketch is the name. What does that mean? It carries a range of meaning. I was reluctant to, I didn't want to translate it for the mm. title. Sure. Um, some people thought I should, but uh, I absolutely didn't want to translate it. But it carries a range of meaning in English. Mom, uh, my mother used to say it, my aunties and uncles used to say it, when something extraordinary happened, Mama Scotch. Mm. And so it's a word that stuck with me. Okay. And um, it, I canvassed 30 fluent speakers of Cree mm-hmm. uh, before I used it as a title to see what mm. meaning they would give it. And they came up with a range of meaning from something as simple as wow okay. to it's a miracle. Ah. So it conveys that whole range of meaning. You know, I always find it interesting with indigenous languages, um, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, that you canvass these people to try and get a sense of, of what this means and, and is it appropriate to use, because I think when people ask me for an interpretation of a word or try to explain something, I always feel at odds trying to give them a definitive answer for something because there are so many interpretations or it right. can change so much. And uh and so it's it's nice to hear that you were you you did the same thing with that. Now, I'd like to I'd like to ask you about the way this book was written, because sometimes I think you 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 leave the reader hanging in situations, or you jump to something that I'm not expecting you to go to, and, and going where is this coming from? Um, so why the choice of of you know having having the book jump around in that way? Well, in the first chapter, which is entitled Spirals, I talk about how my mother told stories. Mm. And it seems that she's passed some of that on to me. Mm. So mother wouldn't tell stories in a chronological manner. Yeah. She'd start with one theme and one group of characters in one sort of time, space and time. And then she'd roll into the next theme and the next theme and the next theme. And I'd get sit there impatient because, you know, in elementary school, I was used to, you know, reading stories that were in chronicle order, mm. beginning, middle and end mm-hmm. kind of thing. And, um, but I learned that if I just listened long enough, she'd come back, she'd circle back and she'd finish the first story and she'd finish the second story and finish the third story. And so I was kind of setting out an agreement with the reader in the first chapter that would give me some license to tell stories in a different way. Okay, so you're basically telling this from an indigenous perspective because a lot of indigenous people do exactly that. They jump around. So Right, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So so it's not chronological. So that makes sense to me. It's it's uh it's where the the mind sort of takes you at the time. Right. Because one thing leads to another. It's not always chronological. Thanks. That's great. Good answer. Well, and something that was different with mom too that used to drive me kind of crazy was her the way she would situate events in time. She would be so dramatic and 
emphatic about some things that you think they happened yesterday. And so I'd be listening to her saying, well, well, where was I when this happened? <laughs> and she was talking about something that happened 30 years ago, like as if it had happened yesterday or in the morning. Yeah, that's is, what you do in this book too. Right. <laughs> that's yeah. right. <laughs> Great. Okay. So I'm glad that, that you gave uh, people, uh, you know, a little bit of that uh, so they know uh, it helps them to a little bit as they're reading through this. That's great. You know, the other thing that sticks with me as I read through this, there are a lot of difficult situations as a reader and, and, right. and yourself to, 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 to just read, uh, you know, uh, you you have a lot of questions. You you bring up a lot of questions about yourself and, and the situations that were either uh, put on you or you found yourself in, and the choices you make, and and you question yourself a lot about those situations. Right. Religion is a big thing that always drives you in terms of asking questions. Um, but also about the, the the intimate relationships you found yourself in and the choices you make and the and and you know even that uh, it's interesting that you you voice those questions to the reader you know is is this the right is this what I am is and and so but in all of that and I'm going to go back to the violent situations and the, and the sort of uh, strange outbursts that your mother had and the strange things that she did what I found when I read this was. The violent situations or the, the more dramatic situations in that regard, the physical outbursts, uh, or the, I felt were distant. I, I was reading about them. Right. Whereas the other side of things, the, the, the situations you found yourself in with, uh, with other men and other situations that developed with you, were very intimate. And I mean, even the, even the way you approached them were very intimate in terms of the the delicacy they were approached with and the way they were you 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 right. brought the reader into them. Okay. Does that make sense to you? It does. Good. So, it, <laughs> did you have a question associated with that? Well, I guess the the thing is that throughout reading this I wrote this down also. I wrote down calm, quiet, Sounds of nature. You, you were talking about your mother and that attachment to your heritage and, and those kind of things. And no matter what I read throughout this, and it was more so when I read about these, the, 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 the encounters, the sexual encounters you had and the different relationships you found yourself in, whatever you were, whenever you were thinking or, or whenever you were pausing in those situations, I think I kept coming back to this calm, quiet, sounds of nature, um, far away it, hmm. there was this calmness throughout the whole thing that took me back to i think where you where you grew up you know there was something there that always took me there when i was right. reading this book throughout no matter what was happening i always got this sense of of a nice warm breeze blowing hmm. at me and this calmness does that make sense to you it does and with both of those comments you've brought up uh, perspectives on the book that um, nobody else has brought up before, so that's that's wonderful. Thank you for that. And mm. um, I'll go back, particularly the description of the 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 physical, uh, the violence mm. versus the other types of contact. It'll be interesting for me to go back and, and read those passages mm. and and try to understand uh, what you're talking about mm. there. Um, possibly <clears throat> with the violent situations, I know certainly in one chapter that doesn't involve direct violence, it's more self-harm. Um, it's called Mystigoso, the Frenchman. 
I wrote that not in third person, but in a with a completely different structure. It's a story within a story kind of thing to try to mitigate uh, the difficult emotions, the intensity of the emotions that mm. were in that, mm. in the content mm. itself. Uh, with the the passages that describe physical violence, possibly I was trying to um, mute the the harm for the reader. I'm not sure, mm. but. People have said, other, some reviewers have said that the prose carried them through. And I think they're, they're, you've put it in a more elaborate way that um, somehow the prose con- conveyed a sense of calm and peace, even though there was mm. a lot going on. Mm. So I think um, it may be the, not to... Um, you know, give myself a compliment, but the the artistry of the book um, helps to carry uh, the reader through it and not get overwhelmed by the content. Mm. Of course, the other the other thing that you you uh, are are con- constantly going through in this book is is these the questions we brought up the the whole point about questions. Uh, questioning your identity, sex, uh, questioning your sexual identity, right? Um, and it, 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 I'm just wondering, you know, as we read through this and we see what happens to you and see uh, the choices you make as you as you go through your life and 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 how these things roll out for you, um, the two things of about of, of abuse versus choice, you know, came to me as well about. I guess that was a, a you know, was, was that a, it, it felt at first it was, it was maybe abuse and then, but there was choices made as well. You made choices. Well, uh, it took me years to understand what had happened in that situation of, of sexual abuse. Mm. And a child who's 10 or 11 years old isn't capable of making that kind of choice right. of whether or not to participate or... Yes particularly with a person who's in a position of power over you mm-hmm. and um, in a trusted relationship with you. So, uh, I, you know, I did carry guilt around for years and years uh, about that situation and what happened there. But it was when I was teaching and an ex- I had an expert come into the classroom, the Vancouver School Board used to bring experts on sexual abuse prevention to talk to children um, right from age 10 up. And so this woman came to speak to my grade four class and I sat in on part of the session and the the whole thing came up of, of blame and what happens when it's a person in a position of trust that Mm. is the perpetrator. And she had this whole wonderful process of making it clear that it's never the child's fault uh, in any circumstances. And she even, you know, went so far as to, explain that, you know, at times it may feel pleasant, it may feel mm-hmm. good, what's happening physically right. may feel good, but that doesn't make it right, and that doesn't right. make it better, mm-hmm. uh, just that it doesn't, because it isn't hurting. Yes. Um, so um, that brought me tremendous relief. Mm-hmm. And um, something else that I've said in other interviews that I think is really important to convey um, is that when a child, it's my firm belief that when a child experiences any type of sexual interference, no matter how mild or severe, it will definitely impact their adult life. Sure. Um, and their possibly their sexual orientation, how their sexual life plays out as an adult, 
um, all that sort of thing. So, you know, for would-be perpetrators who think, you know, just, you know, a mild form of sexual abuse isn't so harmful, and that actually came up in one of the... Uh, uh, a case that's a, a cardinal is facing in Australia right now where his lawyer argued, well, it wasn't that bad. He only did this. Mm. I think they used the, the term, it was vanilla-style uh, mm. sexual interaction, which mm. is just horrible. Right. But any type of sexual interference with a child is definitely going to impact their adult life and their their health, the type of how healthy they are in, in their relationship and sexual life as adults. And the gender... Uh, identification, gender identity thing was <laughs> largely brought on by one of my great teachers, who was my older brother, mm-hmm. uh, who underwent a gender transition to become right. my sister, as did one of my uncles, became one, became an aunt. Yes. So, you know, my brother was six years older than me, and for all, it, and was a, a true big brother. He, he taught me how to fish, you know, he, he taught me how to use a knife, and all the, he wa- looked out for me. And did all the things, uh, you know, a, a big brother would do for a little mm-hmm. brother. And I truly did look up to him as my big brother. And so when he, I found out that he was undergoing a gender transition, it was a real shock to me. And um, it definitely made me question, so what, what's going to happen to me when I get to that, that age and that stage of life? And, mm. you know, how am I going to feel about my gender? And, mm. and there's a passage in the book, there's a, a chapter called Indian Princesses, where I right. deal with all of that. Yeah. And um, you can read about my conclusion in there about, I did, even at age 11, come to a conclusion about how I felt about my gender identity. Mm. Um, now, from reading the book, you obviously were an intelligent child. You, you know, you, you did well at school. Y- yeah, I did. I always excelled, and um, the teachers recognized it, and that was very fortunate. They, yeah, that... that Somewhat surprised me, simply because of where that you I was were intelligent, or that the teachers <laughs> recognized <laughs> that you were excelling, simply because of where you were coming from and what was mm. you know what you was surrounding you, and yet you were still able to to perform well in that regard. That that's what surprised. It me. was my escape. Yeah, it was my escape. Um, and later, you'll see in in the second book, work becomes my escape. Mm. You know, I became a, a, a chronic workaholic and. Yeah. Uh, High needs, high needs achiever, mm. how, whatever they call that. But I was very fortunate. The teachers um, recognized the, the, my abilities and um, really encouraged me and, and took on a sort of fostering and mentoring role. Most of my teachers did, and it was just great. Yeah, and, but, but there were are some other teachers that I guess that had some... Um, they weren't exactly encouraging. You got the strap a couple of times for some <laughs> In grade silly one things. when I was six years yeah, old for yeah. breaking a crayon, right? Yeah. And it's interesting that um, uh, a lot of anybody who reads my book who's in my age group or slightly older, slightly younger mentioned Miss Long. In fact, I saw, uh, I was doing a reading in Vancouver and there was a fellow who had been raised in, uh, in Smith and went to school in that little town um, maybe a year earlier, a year or two earlier than me. And he hadn't read the book yet, and he said to me, "Did you mention Miss Long?" And I said, "I sure did. <laughs> she was in there. Yeah, she she was definitely uh, she discriminated against the the mm. First Nations kids, against the Native kids. She didn't didn't like us. But I was fortunate that you know I had three of my, the angels I had in my life were teachers. Mm. Now, you know, again, I, I want, I'm I'm 
I think it's wonderful that you were able to excel in that in that regard, even though uh, it sounded like there were there were forces that were that would have you know generally uh, pushed anyone else down and not felt like they had anything to hope for or, or go for. Um, and, and so I think that's that's wonderful. And congratulations to you uh, for for being able to do that. Um, so how did you as you were aware of that, I get you were obviously aware of this happening as well in terms of the um, the racism and things that were happening going around you. So so how did you as you say, you this was your your escape. But how did you um, how did you manage that? On a on a daily basis to go from one environment, you know. I also said that you know your mm-hmm. mom would make you stay up with you mm. uh, to to talk to you, and you wouldn't get to sleep until the wee hours of the morning at times. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was always a bit naive, and still am a bit naive mm. in um, thinking that everybody has a good side, mm. and I just try to appeal to the good side of people, I guess. And but I found out over, even as a kid, I found out there were a few kids you couldn't appeal. They, they didn't. They probably had a good side, but they weren't willing to show it to me. Like you know, one kid who I stopped going to phys ed in grade nine because um, one kid would would find whatever excuse he could. Like when I, we were playing soccer, you know, to kick me in the head and pretend he was kicking the soccer mm. ball. That happened several times, or mm. to elbow me in the gut really hard. And so I just stopped going because mm. there was too much. I was mm. getting hurt, mm. and it wasn't pleasant. And mm. I couldn't say anything. Uh, nobody would believe me. I didn't believe. I didn't think the the teacher would believe me because the the guy who was doing it was very clever about how he did it. And um, luckily, when I went to Calgary uh, to high school, the kids in Calgary just accepted me. They thought they were curious about who I was, and mm. I tell them, "I'm Nahiel. I'm Cree from Northern Alberta." Uh, but they thought I was some 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 exotic person that they had never seen anybody like me before, and they liked me, and suddenly I was popular and uh, <laughs> had the lead in a in a high school musical in grade ten, and that got got me more popularity. And then uh, we had a model parliament, and I got elected as a member of parliament, and uh, that kind of thing. It was it, it, high school in Calgary was really fun, even though. I was going through a very hard time then as well. Mm. But uh, I think I always was naive. And it's it's a good type of naivete about thinking that everybody has a good side and you just have to try to appeal to the good side of people and hopefully they'll come through. Mm, interesting. Well, that's a, a good spot for us to take a pause. We do have okay. to take a break here on Moment of Truth, but we will be right back with Daryl McLeod on Element FM. And we are back on Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto at 106.5 FM and in Ottawa at 95.7. And of course, anywhere around the globe on the Radio Canada app, just download that and type in 106.5 Element FM or 95.7 and you can listen anywhere, anytime. Our guest today is Daryl McLeod. He is here discussing... His book, his memoir, part one that he's uh, come out with, and uh, it's been fascinating so far. Mamaskech is, uh, if I've got that correct, did I say that Close correctly? Close enough, Mamaskech. Mamaskech. So we were talking also earlier about how indigenous words can be interpreted in different ways, and um, that's one of the words that uh, is, is one of those things that can be interpreted in different ways. But before the break, uh, just before the break, we were talking about naivety and always looking at people's good side. And I'm wondering, Daryl, 
where that came from for you because of the background you came out of. How did this this uh, this continuing uh, you know desire for looking at the best side of people sustain itself for you uh, in terms of what you saw and what you were experiencing? Well, I think I got it from uh, two sources: my Moshon, my great grandfather, mm-hmm. who's mentioned in the book quite regularly, mm-hmm. and my mother, because mm-hmm. they were both like that. Mm-hmm. They were both very positive about life in general, in spite of all the difficulties we were going through, and always reached out to people. Mm-hmm. And um, mother had friends who, she was friends with local people in her healthier days. She was friends with uh, local people who were Ukrainians, mm-hmm. some of the farmers. She mm-hmm. traded them cream for dried moose meat. Um, she traded them chickens for different things, for deer meat and stuff like that, and for berries, blueberries. And uh, she always seemed to find the the good side of people to interact with. Mm. And uh, she even did this, she used to do this thing on Christmas Day and um, Easter and Thanksgiving where she'd make a big turkey and after we'd have our, had our family meal, she would inv- invite the older single men, and they were all white, mm. generally, um, to come and eat mm. because she knew they had no family and no place to eat. And they recognized that they all came to her funeral and uh, mm. me- mentioned that to me, reminded me that she used to do that, and they, they remember that kindness. Um, and my Mushum was a very social man. He, d- he only spoke Cree, mm. my great-grandfather. He only spoke Cree, and he could have learned English. He was a very smart man, but he would only speak Cree. But he still socialized with people as much as he could. You know, mm. he'd walk down, when he lived with us the last few years of his life, he would walk downtown uh, to... <laughs> to the extent there was a downtown. But he'd go and uh, he'd meet people along the way and shake their hand and say tanse and mm. do his best to communicate with them. And uh, and actually, uh, in mom's later life, when she was healthy again after age 50, she stopped drinking at about age 50. And she used to actually lecture me about um, being nice to people and seeing people's nice side. For example, we'd be in a restaurant. I remember one experience. We are in a restaurant and we got rude service from a waitress. And I said, oh, who does she think she is? You know, why is she treating us like that? And mm. She's just a waitress. Mm. And my mother said, don't you ever think about people like that. Don't ever talk mm. about people like that. She might be having a bad day. Mm. And the fact that she's a waitress shouldn't mm. make you hold her in any lower esteem than anybody else. Interesting. Yeah, so she had an interesting philosophy in life. And mom always greeted people with a smile. Uh, when she was healthy. And in her later years, uh, when she was, had stopped drinking again, it was the same. She always greeted people with a handshake and a smile. Mm. Uh, you also had a, a very close relationship with your sister Debbie, I believe. I did. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to, to expand on that at all? Or Well, when uh, mom left us, I was about 10 years old, and my sister Debbie uh, was 17, and she had married at age 15, a man who was like, um, his name is Rory in the book. Um, and they had moved away. And when mom left, she took me in. She convinced her husband that I should come to live with them. The younger kids went into a foster home, mm. but I avoided that mm. because of Debbie, basically. Mm. And she became a surrogate mother. She was my surrogate mother even when, when mm. mother was still with us. Right. She took me everywhere she went and she looked after me and spoiled me. Uh, she, I was her baby for whatever reason. <laughs> I was the one she picked. And uh, 
So we remained very close, and uh, I lived with her and her husband for three years. And uh, that's unfortunately when the abuse started. And Debbie didn't know about the abuse or would have done something about it. Um, That was with Rory. With Rory, right, exactly. But um, Debbie was an amazing person. Unfortunately, she she had, the the deck was really, truly stacked against her. Mm. She was very bright and very capable too. And she was actually popular even in our little hometown. Mm. Um, But unfortunately, Rory's abuse started with her. First of all, she was only 15 when they got married, Mm. and their relationship had started before that, uh, before they got married. I think it was a forced marriage, Mm. not because she was pregnant, but because mother kind of gave Rory an ultimatum. Mm. Um, And uh, so he married her, and I think at the beginning, the first year or two, he loved her. Uh, He acted like he loved her, but then he got physically abusive, really badly abusive to her, like beating her. and. in an era, I'm sad to say, when many men did mm. and got away with it. Yeah. And um, I saw him hit her in front of other people, and the other people didn't react. There's a description of that in the book. Where yeah, you there's actually a story. jump in and, and stop him from doing that. Right. And then the other guys sort of. When he in. starts to hit a child, then the other people yeah. jumped up. But when he was hitting right. the woman. Uh, and that's, I think, he comes back to that and tells you something about that later in the book right. about the fact that he thought. She was pregnant, and that's why he hit her because he, he, and it was it was quite a statement to make. It's grotesque. Uh, he he punched her in the stomach. I I saw him do that, and that's when I jumped in, and um, I knew he would just throw me to the ground. Well, he'd already thrown me to the ground once when my first attempt, and so this time I thought all I could do. <laughs> I'd watch wrestling on TV like a lot of kids in right. my age had, and it was really popular then. And so I thought the only thing I could do is wrap my arms around him like and lock him in mm. like that right. so he couldn't attack her. So I, I did that. and um, But yeah, when they had separated and he wanted me to stay with him, he wanted to adopt me, uh, he took me for a car ride and explained that he had punched her that time because he thought she was pregnant yeah. and that he couldn't possibly have a kid have a, a child with Indian blood. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's just well. like, and buddy, you want to adopt me? Oh, yeah. It was like, that just didn't make sense. Yeah. Wow. I, I, that that was a heavy uh, comment to make. It was just like, why are you even in this relationship? Then? What the heck? Yeah, just, it, it just boggles the mind when you think of, uh, of the things people do. It's true. It's that simple. Uh, you're living a lie to some degree by, by right. even being in the relationship, you know, so... Um, so you mentioned earlier that in the book you you come to terms, I guess, to to, to um, uh, with with the um, with your sexuality. Have you come to terms with religion and and how that plays out in your life? I sure have come to terms with religion. Um, coming to terms with sexuality was a hell of a lot of work, mm. and it cost me thousands of dollars. <laughs> I mean, in British Columbia at the time, there were only maybe two psychiatrists that were specialized in um, helping men recover from instances of sexual abuse and trauma, the trauma Mm. of sexual abuse. And I had to pay for it myself. Mm. And I went for many sessions, which were incredibly helpful, but I paid thousands of dollars out of my own pocket and countless hours. And then, you know, the psychiatrist had um, readings for me to do and Uh, exercises for me to do and stuff like that, like mental exercises and thinking and self-examination, that kind of stuff. Mm. Religion uh, 
was a bit more organic about how um, that worked out. It worked itself out in my life. Yeah. I didn't set out on a deliberate mission to at any point in time to define in my beliefs. Um, my earliest beliefs were shaped by Mosham, though, because I used to hear him in his room in the mornings chanting and drumming, doing a high, high chant, and mm-hmm. I knew it was spiritual. And Mom told us that he was chanting and praying, mm-hmm. um, what what he was doing. And um, we found out when Mother passed away that she had her own medicine bundle and that she had been practicing our spirituality in secret all those years for a number of reasons. For years, it was illegal. Right. And um, and also the Catholic Church had brainwashed her and my aunties and uncles and grandparents to believe that it was evil. Well, I guess not completely, but uh, right. somewhere in the background there because she right. was still practicing it, yeah. Right. Um so, uh, but she did it in secret, okay. and she didn't teach us. Yeah, uh, she she didn't tell uh, talk to us story. about it. Right, exactly. Um, but then in high school in Calgary, I had some friends, some of my close friends. I had a lot of really nice close friends, mainly other people who were involved with music, mm. and they introduced me to fundamentalist Christianity, and I became a born again Christian. Mm. And um, you know, and I. I don't do anything halfway, so I really threw myself into that and mm. even became an elder with this Pentecostalist group. You know, mm. they, they called it th- us the youth elder. Okay. It's an mm. oxymoron, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I was quite involved. And uh, I came out of that when uh, that group tried to excommunicate one of my good friends who I had brought into the group and had brought to Christianity. Mm. And uh, they were going to do, they tried an exorcism with him, and they tried an exorcism with me, which is in the yes. book. Yeah. They tried an exorcism with my friend Jerry, and it supposedly didn't work. So they were going to have a ceremony which they, in which they wanted me to participate as a youth elder to turn his soul over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, to condemn him to everlasting hell. Wow. And it was a ceremony that would involve praying to Satan. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, "There's my common sense kicked in, and mm-hmm. I guess my other spiritual spider senses started tingling, and I just said, First of all, why are we praying to Satan? Who does that? Right. And uh, this is wrong. Mm. You can't do this. Mm. And I, I left, and I hoped my friend Jerry would follow me, but he didn't. He stayed, and they, they, the other people underwent, undertook the ceremony. Mm. It was just awful. So I left, and I didn't go back. And that was sort of the beginning of the end. Mm. Then of that Christian phase of my life. Then I moved to Vancouver, and at UBC, I. Uh, there's a Native Indian teacher education program, they called it back then, and they used to have big gatherings and powwows every once in a while. And I stumbled onto one, and I heard this man drumming, and I was just drawn by the right. sound of the drum. I remember you saying that. Yeah, yeah. and um, then in another at another event, I actually talked to an elder about the drum, and he said, well, you're drawn by it, and it's so powerful for us because that's the first sound that we hear when we're in the womb is our mother's heartbeat, that boom, 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 boom. Mm. And it's powerful. And that same elder was talking later, uh, Just he wasn't giving a sermon as such, but he was talking to a group of people. Somebody asked him what he believed happened when we died, and mm-hmm. he said, well, we replenish the earth. <laughs> and I thought, how beautiful and simple is that? <laughs> exactly. It's wonderful, and our spirit goes to the other side. Right. <laughs> you know, and I had been praying and struggling to connect with this image of a man with mm-hmm. a beard you know, and and a white face and long hair that I just couldn't connect with for Mm. some reason, even though I tried with all of my heart and soul. Mm. And um, so that led me to 
continued to explore. I mean, I had my first sweat lodge ceremony not long after that, and that was incredibly powerful mm. for me. Um, my ancestors came, and I can't talk about the details, but my ancestors came to visit me for the first time in that sweat lodge. And then um, I was involved in a pipe ceremony later uh, that a friend of mine who was a pipe carry facilitated, and I had the second visitation by mm. my ancestors and it's just gone gone on from there nice congratulations for all that thanks um so we're winding down in time i'd like to know what you what would you like people to take away from this book from reading this book well i guess first and foremost that that healing is possible um and for young people for kids or youth who might come across the book i would you know point them to the the very opening quote, which is a quote by Jean-Paul Sartre. Mm. Um, Freedom is what you do with what is done to you. Mm. And say that no situation is impossible. Uh, Try to find a way out. Don't give up and don't uh, surrender to what may seem to be an overwhelming situation. And for everybody else, I just say healing is is possible. True healing is possible. And there's no need to carry around any um, burden of guilt and shame. Um, anything that's, if anything has happened to you, happened to a person as a child or a young person or even as an adult that wasn't uh, your fault or that was against your will, it's not your fault. And, um, you know, true healing and relief from that is possible. Okay. And the other thing is just, you know, um, I, I don't think we just need we need to be survivors. We can thrive and and have amazing lives once we're in charge of our own lives. Mm. Um, and I think uh, I'll just add to that that um, I, I think it's fair to say that 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 there are some uh, graphic situations yes, in this book. So you should you should be aware of that absolutely. Um, and just uh, if you're going to be uh, showing someone a younger reader that this uh, that That's be aware right. of that that there is uh, some delicate situations uh, yep. and some. Uh, uh, you might need to be doing some explaining, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and just be aware of of those situations that are that are in this this book as you read it. Uh, and just before we go, you're you're up for an award, I understand. Yes, uh, and this will be the second one. I won the Governor General's Award mm-hmm. for nonfiction in December of last year, yes, 2018, and now I'm up for the RBC Charles Taylor Nonfiction Prize, and I'm one of five finalists, which is why I'm here in town. They're really doing it in style. They bring the five authors, the five finalists together with five emerging writers. And um, there's a series of events. Some of, One public event happened last night, and I think there, there's, there's another public event. There's no other public event associated with it. But there's, there'll be lots on the media right. and uh, lots of, uh, like, like this show, there'll be lots mm-hmm. of other media exposure and announcements. And the big announcement is on March 4th. They're truly keeping us in suspense yes. until the last moment. And, and, and we, will, uh, we will keep our uh, listeners... Uh, informed as to how that turns out oh, as good. well. And congratulations and all the best. Thank uh, you. And, and congratulations on your work thus far. And uh, I certainly hope that you go on to do uh, other great things and look forward to the second memoir uh, as that uh, you're working on at the moment. Are you working on something else as well? Yeah, uh, my first book of fiction, Yep, which is based on my time. It's, it's fiction, mm-hmm. but it's a fictionalized account of my time in the North as a school principal. Great. Look forward to that as well. So the book we are talking about today is Mama Sketch. And uh, you can you can get that. Uh, where can you pick that up? 
in local bookstores. Yep. Um, it's carried by most of the local bookstores. Okay. The, the smaller independent bookstores have been incredibly supportive, Great. more so than the big bookstores. However, uh, chapter in, Chapters Indigo does carry it in some of their stores. They definitely carry it online, and Amazon has it available online. Great. And it's soon to be available in the U.S. All right. Uh, you have been listening to uh, Moment of Truth on Element FM. Our guest today is Daryl McLeod and his book, Mama Sketch. Thanks, and see you next time.